Good morning to each of you. Again, our thanks to uh, Jesse for filling in for Chris in his absence. And for that matter, our thanks to all of our musicians who show up here awfully early on a Sunday morning to practice, to prepare, and to get ready for us. And we certainly are appreciative of each and every one of you. Take God's word now, I invite you. And turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Again, that is the book of Galatians, chapter 3. William Williams was a a preacher. William Williams, uh, 18th century, so a couple of years ago, uh, far across the Atlantic, the country of Wales, and he was a, a preacher in the 18th century during what, what are called the Welsh revivals. All right? So you remember the Great Awakening in the English colonies here in the mid-1700s, the mid-18th century? Uh, well, there was a lot going on across the pond, so to speak, in England, Scotland, and Wales. A great moving of the Spirit. And William Williams was a key preacher and leader in that movement, and he wrote a number of books. And one of the books he penned is entitled The Experience Meeting. I know it sounds a bit odd. The Experience Meeting. And it was basically a manual, a how-to manual for organizing uh, society meetings, as he called them, society meetings what we might call care groups. So how to organize, lead a a care group, a how-to manual. The goal of these groups, however, was very specific. Uh, Remember, they're in the midst of the revivals. And so the goal of these groups really was to awaken people, to quicken them, to stir them on, so to speak, in the pursuit of God and godliness. And so the meetings were organized with that very specific goal in view. And so William Williams, he includes in this manual, the experience meeting, a bunch of questions, questions to be answered, considered, discussed in these society meetings, questions specifically designed to force people, professing Christians, to evaluate themselves in the light of Scripture and to gauge where they are at, how they are doing presently in their walk with the Lord. I've taken some of these questions and I have modified them, edited them somewhat, and I want to give you a few, seven of them, all right? Here they go, here we go. Question number one, has God been real to you this past week? How vivid is your assurance of God's forgiveness? And how vibrant is your certainty of God's steadfast love? So you can answer that question to yourself. Has God been real to you this past week? Question number two. Are you experiencing seasons of delight in God? Are you aware of his presence in your life? How so? That's a very good question. Number three, 
Do you perceive that the Bible is alive and active, or is it a dead letter? Do you ever feel as though the Bible is coming after you? The Bible has you in its sights, so to speak. Number four, are you deriving comfort from any particular biblical promises at the moment? Which ones? Why? Number five, is God calling you, convicting you, and challenging you through his word? How so? Number six, are you conscious of a growing sense of the evil in your heart? Are you conscious of what it means to live in dependence upon God's mercy in Christ Jesus? And number seven, is God's grace more glorious to you today than in the past? Now, I'm smiling to myself because some of you are writing furiously, and I'm going to say it now, what I refuse to say a few moments ago when it would have served you well. These are going to show up in writing care group Wednesday night. So you don't have to worry about trying to get them down. That's the bad side of me. Keeping that little nugget of information from you. You're going to see these seven questions again. They are going to be the focal point of our care groups this Wednesday night. The seventh question is really key. The seventh question is pivotal. Is God's grace more glorious to you today than in the past? If not, why not? If so, why? I mean, we can even simplify the question. Let's just simplify it. Is God's grace glorious to you? Is God's grace precious to you? If we answer in the affirmative, we will answer all of those questions in the affirmative. If, however, we cannot, having evaluated ourselves, testify to the fact that God's grace is glorious and precious and invaluable in our sight, then in all likelihood, our answers to those other questions will be in the negative. And our negative answers tell us something of how we're doing where we're at in our spiritual walk. What I want to do this morning, and it will set you up wonderfully for Wednesday night, is declare three truths. Uh, three truths revealed in many places in God's Word. Three truths that if we, if we grasp these, and if we take these to heart, uh, God's grace will indeed be glorious to us. The three truths emerge, the text we're concerning ourselves with, emerge in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. Follow along as I read these for us now. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let me begin here before we get to the three truths. What is a Christian? That's a loaded question. I think a very good answer is the one Paul gives us in these verses, simply this. 
A Christian is someone who has been baptized into Christ. That's a Christian. Did you, did you catch that? A Christian, a believer, is someone who has been baptized, plunged into Christ. What does that mean? I'll speak personally. It simply means this. There was a moment in time when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, took hold of me by the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit enabled me to see things I'd never seen before in God's Word and to understand things I had never understood previously. The light went on. Uh, Christ took hold of me by the Holy Spirit. And I took hold of Christ through faith. I put my faith, my trust in Him as my Lord and as my Savior. Those were the two bonds that knit us together, the Lord Jesus and me. There was no fusion. I'm not talking about a fusion. There's no absorption. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm referring simply to Christ taking hold of me by the Holy Spirit's influence in my life and me, therefore, taking hold of Christ in and through and by faith. And by virtue of that union, I am reckoned one and eternally one in the sight of God. And because of that union, uh, Christ is mine and I am his. And because of that union, uh, the crucifixion of Christ is mine. And so I can declare right along with the Apostle Paul, as he makes it very clear in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Christ's death is my death. And coupled with that, I can now claim that Christ's life is my life. The life I now live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. To be a Christian is to be baptized into Christ whereby his death, burial, and resurrection become realities in our daily experience. And his death, burial, and resurrection are now the foundation of our relationship with God, whereby we understand that the Lord Jesus, with whom I am one, bore the penalty for my sin in full upon Calvary's cross and also bore the wrath of God in full as he hung there as a substitutionary sacrifice. That is a Christian. A Christian is to be baptized into Christ. That baptism, that union brings three precious consequences, three beautiful implications and these are the three truths I want us to grasp. And upon grasping these, God's grace will indeed be glorious to us. Truth number one, here it is. We have put on Christ. 27th verse. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so my baptism into Christ that moment at which Christ took hold of me, I took hold of him, I became one with him in God's reckoning, God's estimation. At that moment, I put on Christ. I put on this jacket this morning. Right? Simply put. It's an expression. We use it all the time in reference to what? Clothing. We put on clothes. That is the mental image that Paul is conjuring up in verse 27. We have put on Christ, meaning we have clothed ourselves with Jesus Christ. 
Now, clothes say a lot about us, not perhaps as much today as they did at one time. You go back in time, and the clothes an individual wore uh, said a great deal uh, as to the class in terms of society, the class to which they belonged. That isn't the case nowadays. But I think you can still get this idea. I mean, you, a, a pilot who's on duty, you can pick him out of a crowd, can't you? His clothing. A policeman, a state trooper, went on duty. Very easy to identify. A nurse, when practicing, when working. Again, you can point without speaking, without interacting, without any verbal exchange. We are able to identify her, him as a nurse. And so clothing still at times identifies us, doesn't it? I mean, you think even of something as simple as a necktie. Uh, not so much on this side of the ocean, but you get back into a British context. And the necktie says an awful lot. A necktie will often identify what school you went to, where you were educated, which grammar school, which college. Or if you have a military background, your necktie will reveal your regiment. And so there are indicators simply by a man's necktie. You can, un, you can discern a great de deal about him, where he was educated. Was he a serviceman? What group, what regiment did he belong to? And so even today, we, we get this idea, don't we, that clothing still serves to one degree or another this kind of a function. It, it identifies us. It is an identity marker. Well, that is precisely the point Paul is making here in our text, that having been baptized into Christ Jesus, we have now put on Christ Jesus, meaning, again, simply put, that we are clothed with Christ. Now, why is that so important? Why is that so precious? It is precious for simply this reason. Prior to being baptized into Christ, and subsequently clothed with Christ, we were naked in the sight of God. This isn't difficult to understand. You just take a moment, step back in time with me to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we discover Adam and Eve. There they are, the Garden of Eden. Prior to the fall, they were naked and they were unashamed. The temptation occurs. Adam and Eve sin, they disobey, they rebel. They are naked, they are now suddenly aware of their nakedness. Their conscience begins to scream at them. They are filled with shame and guilt. And what is the first thing they try to do? They sew together a bunch of fig leaves as coverings for themselves. A God comes walking in the garden. Adam, where are you? There's a bit of an exchange. And after that exchange, what does God do? He made garments of skins for Adam and Eve and clothed them. He did two things. Firstly, he made those garments of skins, pointing to what? Something had to die before those garments could be made. Speaking to what? The need for a? substitutionary death, a substitutionary sacrifice. That becomes front and center when we, as we make our way through the book of Genesis and we come to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see them continuously, what? Offering sacrifices. 
We come to the nation of Israel and we see throughout their history, the Israelites offering up what? Sacrifices. Oh, the countless number of animals that died when we go back into that period of time known as the Old Testament. And each death of every animal testified to what? That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Each animal testified to this reality that someone must die. There is a price to pay for having disobeyed God. And we have it all the way back there in Genesis 3, whereby God himself slays these animals and makes skins, these garments of skin. But what is the second thing he does? He clothes Adam and Eve. Now understand this, please. The Lord Jesus, as he was hanging upon Calvary's cross, was what? He was naked. Uh, that is not simply a, a passing factual point. His nakedness is extremely symbolic and symbolic of what? That as he hung upon Calvary's cross, he was bearing our shame. He was bearing our guilt. And in assuming our shame and guilt, he was then the Lamb of God shedding His blood to make atonement for our sin and being baptized into Christ. We are then clothed with Christ, meaning God Himself now clothes us with garments of righteousness. We are now clothed in the sight of God. We now have this great identity marker. We now wear this clothing, having put it on, that clearly sets us apart, clearly indicates that we are one with the Lord Jesus. We are identifying with him and that now our nakedness, that is our shame and our guilt for having disobeyed God, transgressed his law and offended him in more ways than we could possibly imagine. That our slate now has been wiped clean in that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Do you know what man's basic problem is? Man's basic problem is this. He still thinks he can get away with fig leaves. That is man's fundamental basic problem. He still thinks his fig leaves are good enough. He brings his clean life before God and says, look at my fig leaves. And God says, you're right, they're simply fig leaves. He brings his church attendance, I don't know. His uh, religiosity, I don't know. He brings the respectable life he has lived. He brings the assurance he derives from comparing himself with other terrible sinners. He brings all of these things before the throne of God. And God looks at them and he simply says, uh, fig leaves, fig leaves. Now, this became quite apparent to me recently, just, just yesterday, actually. I was speaking with a neighbor of mine who is a state trooper. And when um, the hurricane hit, off he went. He was sent down to Houston and um, spent three days, I think he said, search and rescue. All right? That's wonderful. I thanked him for his service. 
and um, some of you went down. I thank you for your service. And uh, we should be extremely grateful for that. Uh, the good that was done. It is, it is humbling, isn't it? And it's encouraging. And um, it's laudable. And we should thank those who have participated, those who have, have helped. And he was involved in that for three days. He was actually down there for two weeks. So I said, what were you doing the rest of the time? Patrol. Looters. Three days search and rescue, and then a week and a half doing what? Keeping these bunch of degenerates from entering into people's vacated homes, uh, stealing and pilfering and taking whatever they wanted. And I thought, what a study in contrasts. Isn't that a, quite the study in contrast? That you have on the one hand such a display of what we can uh, only describe as, as goodness. Um, acts of valor, even we might even say. And then on the other hand, what do we see? Just this stark contrast of the human heart, those who would actually take advantage of such a situation like that to seek to profit from it. Now, where am I going with this? Draw in very closely. Here is man's fundamental problem. We look at something like the pilfering, right? Stealing, thieving, in, in, in such a situation like that, and we have very little difficulty in saying, in concluding, that's sin. And um, that person needs forgiveness. And there's why the Lord Jesus died on the cross. He died for sinners. That is, that is sin. Uh, here is where we stumble. Is many of us think what? That the first three days and the acts of valid, valor and the service however good they are, and they are extremely good, do not misunderstand what I'm saying. And we should applaud, and we should celebrate it, and we should be thankful for it. What do we think in the back of our minds, however, though? So many of us are still convinced of what? That this has some sort of merit in the sight of God. There is the stumbling block for millions, my friends. Right there, stumbling block. I want to state it very clearly. It is good. And it is to be applauded. It is to be celebrated. And it is to be rewarded because of the civil good that comes out of such acts as we have witnessed. But what I want to be very clear on, because I'm seeking to proclaim the gospel, I want to be very clear on this, that outside of Christ, even those things which people do which are good, for society, they are simply fig leaves in the sight of God. Do you believe that, my friend? Fig leaves. Everything you've ever... I'm speaking outside of Christ, unbelievers. Everything that an unbeliever ever does, even those things that we deem, we designate, Good, because they are for the benefit of others. All of these things that so many people are standing on, trusting in, hoping in, and are going to present to God on the judgment day as worthy of God's favor and grace. God is simply going to proclaim what? 
fig leaves. It's all fig leaves. My friends, we must be clothed. And we must be clothed with a righteousness that is not our own. We must be clothed with goodness. We must be clothed with merit. We must be clothed with good works. We must be clothed with all that is precious and esteemed and valued by God. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It is only the Lord Jesus that has any merit in the sight of God. It's a stumbling block for millions. It might be the stumbling block for someone right here, right now. So I'm speaking to you. And I'm speaking as lovingly, compassionately as I possibly can. And I'm speaking as forthrightly and unapologetically as I possibly can. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We do not come with our fig leaves. The only way to enter into the presence of the Almighty God is if we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. And having been baptized into Christ Jesus, we are now robed, clothed, covered with the righteousness of Christ. Oh, nothing can my sin erase. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of works, tis all of grace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's the first precious truth that emerges from this text. In verse 27, we have put on Christ. Here's the second. We are all one in Christ. It comes out in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul makes it very clear in this verse that God doesn't merely save individuals. He does save individuals. He doesn't merely save individuals. What does he do? He creates a new humanity. A new humanity in which there is neither, and he makes three divisions, quite possibly, in my estimation, the three most fundamental divisions in the society that is in the day and age in which Paul lived. Firstly, between Jew and Greek. By Greek, he simply means non-Jew. If you aren't a Jew, you're Greek, meaning you're part of Hellenization, a Greek culture, the Roman Empire. You are a Gentile. There is the first fundamental distinction, and the Jews despise the Gentiles, and equally so, the Gentiles despise the Jews. Secondly, it's not ethnic, it isn't cultural, but now it is social or economic. You're either in that society a slave or free. There is no middle class. You belong to that class, you're a free man, or you belong to that class and you are enslaved, and the free despise the enslaved, and the enslaved despise the free. And there is thirdly what? Now a gender distinction between male and female. And in that society, my apologies to the women present this day, but in that society, you weren't even a second-class citizen. Weren't even a second-class citizen. Not even sure you were a third-class citizen. 
this distinction between male and female and undoubtedly the despising, the mutual despising even between the two genders. And what is Paul's point? Simply this, with simply a line, there's the few strokes of his pen. What does he do? He obliterates the three. Absolutely obliterates them. Having been baptized into Christ, what's the result at the end of verse 28? You are all one in Christ Jesus. As he says in his epistle to the Colossians, Christ is all and in all. All whom? Everyone? Living? No. He's referring to what? The church. He's referring to those who have been baptized into Christ. He's referring to those who are one with Christ. They have now been clothed with Christ, and also now they constitute one body, if you like. They are all one in Christ Jesus, and in this body, the church, Christ is all and in all. How extremely significant that truth must have been in Paul's day. And how significant for life in the Christian community as he addresses those three fault lines that were undoubtedly the cause of so much division even in the Christian community. And how significant is this truth for us today that we are all one in Christ Jesus. All one in Christ Jesus. I mean, it speaks to us in many ways. I mean, firstly, it, it, it just reminds me, doesn't it, of how to view people. I'm, I'm speaking of Christians. We are speaking of the church. We're making reference to the Christian community. This great truth reminds me how I am to view people. I am to remind myself constantly that we are Christians before we are anything else. It's wonderful. And so I happen to be white, right? A white man in Christ. And so a black man in Christ. How do I view him? How does he view me? We view each other in Christ. We are Christians before we are white or black. I'm a college grad. There's a high school grad. I'm a college grad in Christ. There's a high school grad in Christ. How do we view each other? We view each other in Christ as Christians. It trumps all else, any distinction in terms of education, right? I'm male. There are females here, believers in the Lord Jesus. I'm a male in Christ. You're a female in Christ. Well, there are obvious distinctions and differences, roles and responsibilities. That's fine. Paul is not denying that. This is not a verse to be used in defense of evangelical feminism. That is not where Paul is going here. That is to perform hermeneutical gymnastics and rip a verse out of its context and arrive at a conclusion that he never, ever intended. His point is simply this, that in Christ, the body of Christ, male and female, any notion of superiority or inferiority evaporates because above all else, we are Christians. Now, I think even of when it comes to finances, when it comes to citizenship, there's a good one. I'm a citizen in Christ. There's an individual who's an undocumented worker in Christ. Before I'm a citizen, he or she is an undocumented worker. What are we? 
We are Christians. And we are one in Christ. And Christ is all because he is in all. And our identity in Christ trumps all else. Because we are part of the same family. We are part of the same body. We are part of the same church. And we have been made one in Christ Jesus. It's a challenging truth, isn't it? It's a transforming truth. It's an unbelievably encouraging truth. That we belong to a family like this. There I say it. There is only one nation under God. It's the church. It's the people of God. Christians. Those who belong to Christ. And have been baptized into Christ. Oh, I recall many years ago making my way across Ukraine. It was with a summer mission team and we were heading for the Baltics. And we took a train from Budapest and we were heading up north. Had to transfer trains in Ukraine and we had quite the, the weight, the layover. And so ventured out of the train station depot into a, an adjacent park. And we were sitting there singing a few choruses in English and um, noticed another little group of seven or eight people over here. And this fella had a sketchboard, and he was, he was just preaching, top of his lungs in Ukrainian, just proclaiming the gospel. Uh, we saw them, they saw us, we handed them some of the literature we had in Russian and Ukrainian and other languages, they got it, they understood, and the wonderful time we fellowship we had for about four or five hours, there in this park, adjacent to this long forgotten, in my mind, train station in the middle of, I can't even remember the town, somewhere in Ukraine, but there was a commonality, there was a union that transcended the language barriers, the cultural barriers, the ethnic barriers, because first and foremost, above all else, we were Christian. You see, I understand who I am as a sinner. I understand who I am as a sinner. I understand who Brian is is now in Christ. Understanding my own sinfulness and God's grace toward me and understanding now that Brian is in Christ and is a Christian. What possible reason, what possible justification could there ever be in Brian's mind or my mind for feeling superior or inferior one toward the other. If I really get who I am as a sinner, and I really get Brian is now as a Christian, oh, all sense of inferiority and superiority dissipates because our only boast, we only have one boast, Christ is all and in all. There's the second precious truth. The third precious truth is this. We're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. And you get it in the 29th verse. And if you are Christ, so you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, you have put on Christ, that is you've been clothed with him. You are now all one in Christ Jesus, this great body, the, the church universal. Well, if you are Christ, then guess what? It gets even better. You are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise. In that statement, he summarizes the entire chapter. You go all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What's the issue? He tells us in verse 7, know then that it is those of faith 
who are the sons of Abraham. This is what he's been arguing for. This, is, this has been completely misunderstood historically, he is saying. The Jews have made a mess of it, and some Gentiles are now making a mess of it. And I want you to grasp this. The true sons of Abraham are those who are believers like Abraham. And now he just puts the point on the exclamation mark in the 29th verse. If you are Christ's, if you are Christ's conditional clause, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. How does this work? Well, I've been baptized into Christ Jesus. Well, who is Christ Jesus? Go back to verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Who is Abraham's offspring? Christ. The promises were given to whom? This is very important, folks. The promises were given to whom? Abraham and his offspring. Who is Abraham's offspring? Christ. Therefore, the promises were given to whom? Christ. He obtains and inherits everything that God had promised to Abraham. We are now baptized into Christ. Therefore, we are Christ's. Therefore, we are one with Christ. Therefore, we are what? The offspring. Because he's the offspring. And because we're one with him, therefore we are what? Heirs. We get it all. Because he has it all. We are heirs according to promise. We all know what an heir is. Someone writes up a will. There it is. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Passes away. And uh, in that will, designated, this is going to go to that person, this is going to go to that person, and well, nothing's going to go to that person. So the first two are heirs, right? They're getting something. And we know that those wills, those testaments are somewhat flimsy in our day. There isn't a will that can't be challenged. I recall many years ago in Portugal, there's a bit of an eccentric man who knew his days were numbered, and he walked into the registry office uh, with a newly typed out written up will, and he said, I want to uh, divide my will evenly between my, my, my fortune, evenly between 13 people, and he proceeded to pick up the telephone book and randomly select 13 people. That was it. That was his will. Passed away a few years later, and then these 13 people were notified, had absolutely no clue who this man was, notified that they were heir of a small fortune. You can imagine that will was contested. It was contested, hotly contested. This will, so to speak, cannot be contested. Our heirship cannot be contested. Why? Because look at the last phrase in verse 29. We are heirs according to promise. Whose promise? God's promise. And it is God's power, God's wisdom, God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness, God who is engaged to bring about the fulfillment of the promise that he has made us one with his son, the Lord Jesus. He has baptized us into Christ Jesus. Christ who is the offspring of Abraham, therefore the heir of all the Abrahamic promises. 
And now because we are one with Christ, we're Christ's, we too are the offspring. We're heirs. Heirs of what? How much time you got? Heirs of what? For starters, state the obvious. Heirs of a renovated, renewed, glorified body and soul. How about that? Anybody like that? All of you with your aches and pains, your diabetes, your MS, your cancer, your forgetfulness. No one falls into that category. Your weariness. As your body slowly decays before your eyes, you are an heir of a glorified, renewed body and soul in the image of the heir, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You are, I am an heir of a renewed, resurrected, regenerated heavens and earth. You don't have very much right now, right? Friends, we get everything. We get the universe. How's that? We get it all. A renewed heaven and earth and everything that is in it. It is ours. Is that how Abraham understood it? Yes, that's how Abraham understood it. We read in Hebrews 11 that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Even Abraham knew that the final fulfillment of the promise was far more than a little strip of land to the east of the Mediterranean. He knew it was something far more significant, far more glorious, that it was the entire created order. Oh, but even far eclipsing a renewed body and soul and a renewed heaven and earth were heirs in that we inherit a glorious God. A glorious God. It is the promise. It is the fundamental promise. It is the promise of all promises. I will be their God and they will be my people. The Lord Jesus died, Peter tells us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to do what? To bring us to God. He is our inheritance. This God's power is mine. His power is mine to protect me, to keep me, to watch over me, to preserve me, to guard me for that inheritance, that salvation yet to be revealed in the last day. That God's wisdom is mine. Wisdom to guide me through this crazy world. A wisdom to, to, to help me to be sensible. Wisdom to discern between good and bad, right and wrong, truth and error. Wisdom to make decisions that glorify Him and honor Him. Oh, this God's mercy is mine. Mercy to cover the iniquity of my sin. A mercy enough fast and free, to wipe away my mountain and multitude of transgressions. This God's faithfulness is mine. But although I'm finicky, and I'm here, I'm there, the next moment, oh, it's just unbelievable. This God is a simple being, as our brothers and sisters learned through in the Williams Hall this morning. This God is an unchangeable being, and therefore this God is a faithful being. And he fulfills and he completes all of his promises. His joy is mine. 
His joy, His delight that He has in Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. His eternal blessedness that is Himself. But now by virtue of my union with the Lord Jesus Christ, I am an heir of this God. And as the psalmist declares, blessed are those whose God is the Lord. Oh, blessed. Oh, happy. Oh, content. Oh, satisfied are those people whose God is the Lord. Three truths, right? Three truths all flowing from what it means to be a Christian. I am baptized into Christ. Having been baptized into Christ, I have put on Christ. And I stand in robes of righteousness in the sight of a holy God. Having been baptized into Christ, I am now one with every other Christian on the face of the earth right now, every other Christian who has ever lived, and every Christian yet to live. And in this great company of Christians and saints, Christ is all and in all. And having been baptized into Christ, I am Christ's. Christ is the offspring. Christ is the heir of everything God promised to Abraham. And now because I am one with Christ, I am the offspring. And I am an heir of eternal salvation. Now where did we begin? Do you remember? Seven questions. What was the seventh, the final question? Is God's grace glorious to you. In conclusion, I submit to you the extent to which God's grace is glorious to us is contingent upon our appropriation and our appreciation and our estimation of these three glorious truths in sum what it means to be in Christ Jesus. Christian, I pray you derive comfort and encouragement from that. Unbeliever, speaking just a couple of moments to you before we close in prayer. I pray, I pray, my prayer is that in hearing what you have heard, you will understand what it is that you are missing out on. You will understand exactly what it is that lies before the Christian. You will understand precisely your predicament before this holy God as a sinner who has never done one worthy, good, acceptable thing in the sight of God. And you will understand that outside of the Lord Jesus, there is nothing but wrath and anger and righteous indignation. And that you will understand that in Christ Jesus, there is nothing but steadfast love. Oh, he is a fountain. A fountain that flows. A fountain from which we can drink to our souls, our hearts, our minds, delight and satisfaction. Knowing that in Christ Jesus, we find when we come to him through faith, we find an eager, expectant Father, God Himself, who we can then claim as ours. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that You might bless from on high 
these truths from your word to our hearts. You know the need of each one. And so speak to each one, we pray, by your spirit, through your word. With this we ask, we pray that you might be well pleased. And in this we pray that you might be glorified. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.